Good morning and welcome uh, to our service today. For those of you who don't know, my name is Pastor Matt and I'm the youth and young adults pastor here at Arendelle Alliance Church. Uh, we only have a few announcements for you today. And the first is that every Thursday uh, we send out an e-bulletin. So if you're not receiving that, please contact the office and we will get you uh, those e-newsletters, e-bulletins. Uh, there's a lot of good information in there, including uh, the list of nominations for elders. Uh, there's three who are on that list. If you're not aware of who that is, check your email because we have emailed you uh, a candidate list of the nominees and uh, that'll all take place. The voting for, the, for those elders will take place at the AGM, the annual general meeting, which will happen June 21st uh, on Zoom. And if you don't have an ability to use Zoom, uh, we need to know that. So please contact the church office and let us know that you have no way of using Zoom and we'll find an alternative means for you to attend our AGM. Uh, the only other thing I, I want to talk about is what's going on in this world today. Uh, yes, we're going through a crazy time with COVID, but also right now uh, across the world, and especially in the States, we're going through a time of, of crisis in a new way, where we're recognizing uh, the injustice that's happened uh, throughout the world through racism. And I was reflecting on this, and one of the things that really caught my mind, and, and I can't speak to much of this, I'm a, I'm a privileged white male, and it's really hard for someone like me to understand the depths of the pain here. But the one thing I can understand is that we all, in some way, struggle with racism, and we need to be thinking about that. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors, and, and that's a huge call. It's the second greatest commandment. We are to love God, and love our neighbors. And we cannot love our neighbors if we're in any way promoting uh, injustice and racism. So I think this is a really good call, what's happening in the world today, to think about how are we in our own lives? Uh, where are we being maybe a little bit racist? And that sounds kind of silly to say, but I think it's a truth we all need to deeply take a look in our hearts and say, Lord, I'm sorry. This is a way I haven't loved my neighbor. And, and to to take steps to find reconciliation and to shine for Jesus in a way that's just filled with love, where we love our neighbor as ourselves. So that's just a little reflection I've been having over the last week, and I'm praying that we can all take great strides uh, to love our neighbor in the best way uh, that we can do in a way that honors God and gives him glory. Uh, with that, um, I'm going to remind you that when we turn to a time of prayer, that I kind of do things a little differently, and I invite you to pray. Now, I'm just kind of opening up this time of prayer, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start, and then I'm going to close. But when I close, I invite you and ask you to pause the video and to just pray. Pray with, by yourself, with God, with your loved ones, whoever you're with. Uh, take some time to pray for our missionaries, uh, different Alliance churches that we pray in our district, uh, we pray for three each week, and again, the list of who we pray for is in the e-bulletin. Um, so I'm just going to invite us to, to uh, start this time in prayer, and I, I encourage you to continue on uh, before you move on to the worship and the word. So let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for your love. Lord, we are nothing without your love, but you love us so much that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins, that even while we were sinners, he died for us. Lord, I ask that you tell us in a new way how much you love us, that you, you show us 
that you reveal it to us, that we see it with our own eyes, the ways in which you love us, you take care of us, so that we can in turn praise you for that. Lord God, I thank you so much for the ways in which you have taken care of each one of us during this season. Lord, you have used the body to help those who have fallen, and you're also helping those who are strong to, to find ways, different ways, to take care of those who are in need. And Lord, I ask you to continue to reveal ways in which we can serve and help our fellows, our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors. Uh, Lord God, I thank you so much uh, for all that you've given us as a church, the way you've continued to support this church, and the way you continue to use this church to be a light in this community. And Lord, even though we're meeting uh, distantly and we're not always together anymore, I ask that you help us to be able to reconvene soon, that you find a way, Lord God, that you use, uh, whether miraculously or through medicine, you find a way to bring healing uh, from COVID, Lord God, and that we can now meet again together soon. Lord God, I ask that you continue to help us be worshipful Christians, People who, at every moment of the day, worship you for what you've done, what you've given us. People who eat food and are praising you for the food we have. Not just people who eat food for for nourishment. That everything we do is an act of praise. And Lord, as we continue to pray with you, I ask that you hear our prayers. We know that you do, but sometimes it does seem like there's an absence that is silent. But Lord, we know you are not. So open up our ears to hear you, to hear your answering of our prayers and to hear your listening ear to our prayers. And Lord, I ask that you bless us as we go on for the rest of the service and that everything we do, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's during this time of a pandemic that we have seen God doing something new. We cannot deny that there is much desperation and hunger and much scarcity in the world during this time. But when we focus our our eyes on God who is always good, we can see He is doing a good thing. One of the things we've seen Him do in Braveheart is bring people who were broken and distanced from our ministry because of something in the past in. A young woman named Chayo, who was once offended years ago and hadn't let her kids participate, came to some of our ministry leaders and said, I really need some help. I'd like to exchange some handicrafts for a hamper, but I actually have no handicrafts. And so our staff team said, well, we are going to hand out hampers again in exchange for handicrafts. Why don't you come and help us do some work? Chayo showed up early and stayed late. It was during that time that she had a great interaction with our team, and there was reconciliation to a hurt that was brought in the past. I think I could compare this a bit to a big river that is rushing along, and yet God is doing something, changing the course of that river so that little rivers alongside can come into the movement that God is doing. We've also seen other areas of groups of people who are, don't like the groups that we already minister to. And during this time, we've also seen reconciliation happen there. Just this week, one of our staff team said that he was doing an exchange of hampers for handicrafts, and he asked the leader of those people if he would stay behind so he can pray. That man was hungry and ready to be prayed for. He said to him, I've never done this before, but I want to learn more. We thank God for the good work that he is doing. Another thing we've seen God do is in an unreached group, which some of our people on the ground said, we just wanted to get on the bus and go up and be with them and help them during this time. But because there's um, blockades on some of the highways and they couldn't get up there, they just put it in God's hands. 
Last November, one of the girls in, those village, in that village had been at our medical brigade, and she was intrigued that she could see some of the people were believers. She got one of the doctor's cell phone numbers, and during this time of pandemic, she has been on her cell phone sending messages to that doctor asking questions about what it means to follow Jesus. We as a ministry have sensed that there is much good happening as we go all in and work as hard as we can, but we've also sensed a sweetness of the Spirit of Jesus Christ as we step back from things that we can't do and watch what He's already on the move and doing. So we want to thank you for your participation, for praying for us during a time that is critical, and celebrate that God is on the move. Not long ago, when this pandemic was first starting in our world, the Braveheart Ministry talked about how they could possibly effectively minister to families who live hand-to-mouth. Not working today means not eating tomorrow. And so they came up with a plan of celebrating a meal together and then giving out grocery hampers. They put out the word to all their friends in the local churches and the response was astounding. There was so much food given to put these hampers together. So many families came, but the problem was twice as many families came as had been expected. Not just for the hampers, but for the meal that was to be celebrated together. So our Braveheart staff team on the ground was a little bit in a panic mode until one of them said, God multiplied the fish and the bread back way back when, he can do it again. And let's do this, ask God to multiply in front of everyone, because if God does a miracle, then everyone can see it. So together they prayed and asked God if he would multiply the food that they were going to share together and have some tacos that day. And God did. Everyone ate until they were full and there was no food left over. During that time, the, one of our leaders stood up and told the story about how Jesus cares about what he's put in your hand. He will multiply it if you put it back into his hands. So if you go home and you only have a package of beans or you only have enough for soup, put it in God's hands and ask him to multiply it. Many of the people there were kind of dumbfounded that they could actually do something that had happened in scripture years ago today. And so there was one young man at the back that was particularly impressed by that. He was so impressed by the story that he began to translate it for some of the elderly in his community that don't speak Spanish. Later, one of our staff team jokingly said with him, you should be careful. You're telling that story back here, but maybe one day you'll be in front of everyone with a mic, like a pastor telling everyone that story. And the young man looked at her dead serious and said, I think that might happen. He said, I know that God has called me. You see, years ago I was in prison and a group of Christians would come and visit us and I heard about Jesus Christ and I gave my life to him. I know he has called me, but I'm not ready. I don't want to do it. Not yet. I know this is a big deal. We are excited that God speaks when he sows the seed in our hearts. It does not come back empty. We also want to encourage you to pray. As we ask God for these things, he loves to answer us and say yes. Would you pray for us for this young man? It was later that week that one of our ministry leaders bumped into him on a corner, a street corner, and he was handing, he was selling was like fruit and vegetable packages that were about to go bad. And he said to her, at the end of every day, I have a little bit left and I take it to the most vulnerable of my community, to people who have no capacity to work or the elderly. He said that that story you talked about taking care of others with what God has put in my hands has really impacted my heart. Thank you, friends, for traveling with us, for praying with us. We know that God is always good.
Good morning. This first song is taken from Psalm 34. It's a psalm for those who are facing troubles and a psalm of rejoicing in those troubles. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned.
today's Bible reading. Today we're going to be reading Acts uh, book 4 verse 32 all the way until Acts book 5 verse 16. We're reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to every person, as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge, and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to the people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young man got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell this land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who had heard these things. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people throughout the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats, so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Good morning and welcome to this week's service with Arendelle Alliance Church. My name is Pastor Joran Green and I am blessed to be a part of this congregation and excited to invite you to join with us this morning as we study the Word of God. If you've got your Bibles handy, I invite you to turn with us to Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick the story up of the early church in the aftermath of the Sanhedrin seeking to stop the proclamation of Jesus Christ. They've had Peter and John in, they've threatened them, they said, do not teach in this name. The church has gotten together after the apostles were released. They have prayed, they have asked for boldness, 
God sends the earthquake and we're told that they proclaim the message with boldness. They begin to speak. And now we find out what the aftermath of that prayer about halfway through Acts chapter 4 is. So if you bow with me in prayer as we look at the last part of Acts chapter 4 and then on into Acts chapter 5. Holy God, would you meet us this morning or this afternoon in Saskatoon, in our homes, wherever it is that we might be joining together as your people. Thank you, Holy God, that where we gather in your name, you are with us. Thank you for the seal of your spirit, that we are never alone. And thank you that your church is not about a building or four walls or, or any geographical location, but it is your work in your people as we surrender our hearts and lives to you. Meet us this morning or this afternoon. We're recording on a Wednesday, Lord. Thank you that what matters is this is in your name, for your glory and by your power. Guide us and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the comments I've heard repeatedly is that comment of, we need to go back to a New Testament church. And to be frank, I, I, I'm a, a Bible college professor by background. I've taught the book of Corinthians, both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I believe it is 17 times. When people say, we need to go back to a New Testament church, my first thought is, that's Corinth and I don't want to go there. And we'll save that for maybe another sermon series down the road. There were significant challenges in the Corinthian church. They were sinning in some remarkably creative ways. And Paul had to come alongside and rebuke and correct not only their conduct, but even their theology. Typically, when people say, we need to get back to New Testament church, they're actually thinking this first section we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 4. They're typically thinking, of starting at verse 32, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. No one claimed they had possessions of their own, but instead they held everything in common. And this whole concept, I think, captivates a lot of our hearts, this idea that Personal possessions aren't a big issue. We will look after the needs of each other. We will take care of one another. We'll sacrifice for one another. They'll sacrifice for us. And there really is a sense, I think, for a lot of us as we read through Acts, this is a golden moment in the church, and it is. It's a beautiful moment. A number of years ago, I had a couple of sisters come through the college as students. They were both ex-Hutterites. And we actually discussed their background, their upbringing, and the theology that led to the creation of Hutterites and the Hutterite community and the, the style of life that they embrace. This is actually one of the texts that they as a community point to and say, we can do life better as disciples of Jesus Christ. And of course, there's some challenges that that brings with it as well. When I think of this idea of all things in common, it reminds me actually of an incident we had and I was flipping back through my photos, uh, the fall of 2008, we were in the middle of cancer treatment with my daughter, Catherine. I've alluded to this a few times. And the student body in, in probably late October, early November, about the time Bible school students have no money, decided that they needed to do a fundraiser for us. And they, they, a group of them got together and I really wasn't invited in the con conversation at all. They just kind of decided they were going to do this, recognizing we were driving back and forth from Pembroke to Saskatoon, 
sometimes multiple times in a week. It was, it was quite intensive what we were going through. And seven young men stepped forward and apparently a couple of young ladies asked to participate as well, but the college suggested it might not be wise. And they said, if we raise $500 for the Greens, we will all shave our heads. And this was their way of sharing with, with us as a family. They recognized we were in need. I was teaching full time. Catherine was in the middle of, of her treatment. Dorothy had stepped away from her role at the college right then because of Catherine's treatment. $500 will shave our heads. I had to explain to my daughter we were getting, we were getting ready to drive actually for treatment. I had to explain to her. She looked over and she saw uh, three of the seven bald young men. And she said, why are their heads bald, Daddy? She was about six at the time. And I explained, they, they shaved their head to raise money to help, uh, to help us take you to Saskatoon for your cancer treatments. And my six-year-old teared up as I am. And she asked me to shave her head again. She was between cycles of the, of the drug that would cost her her hair, but we knew another one was coming. And she made me shave her head. And they presented us with a check for over $3,000 out of a small student body. And every time I read this text, I'm reminded of what I call my seven bald boys who took it upon themselves to share with what they had, invite others to share. And, and it, 12 years later, it's still meaningful. I, I can point to story after story. They are one symbol of how God's people rallied around us in incredible ways. We would not have made it had it not been for the grace and kindness of, of close family friends who gave us a place to stay and, and people from all over North America sending us money to help with our expenses and, and the doctors and the nurses. I'm so thankful for the people who rallied around us. And we see that here in Acts chapter 4. They have all things in common. In fact, one that stands out in verse 36 is Joseph. He's a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles call Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And just as my experience of God's people being gracious is still meaningful, and, and I still marvel at God's people and their kindness, we see that that's what the early church was doing. And in fact, we have Barnabas here introduced, as Luke often does, drops a character in, and then Luke will move away from that character and then come back to him. We'll spend a lot of time with Barnabas yet. We're introduced, Joseph, his real name. But he encourages and his move here to sell this piece of property, to share the proceeds, and then to see that the church would be advanced through this. And when we talk about getting back to a New Testament church, it's moments like this we look at and we go, we want to be part of a congregation like this. We want to love and be loved this way. And it's beautiful. But it doesn't last long, unfortunately. What happens now is that selfishness begins to creep in. And, and this the challenge of do I fear God or do I fear men really comes to the forefront because now we move to chapter five and we meet Ananias and Sapphira who are much, I'm sure to their chagrin, legendary for being the first named people punished by God in the early church. Ananias and Sapphira owned a piece of property. They see the honor that was paid to Joseph, also known as uh, also known as Barnabas. They see the respect he's given. They want some of it for themselves. They sell a piece of property. And the language that's used here is fascinating. 
in verse 1. They kept back part of the proceeds. We'll come back to that. They kept back part of the proceeds. Ananias goes in first. They don't go in as a couple. He goes in first. The plan is his wife will follow in a few hours later. He presents the money, gives it to Peter, lays it before Peter, and Peter confronts him. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours when you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it you'd planned this thing in your heart? You've not lied to people, but to God. They are seeking the approval of men. They're more concerned about their public persona and their public appearance. They see the adulation that Barnabas receives. They're excited by what happens to him, and they realize we can get in on this as well. So they lie about what they get for the land. I love Peter's rebuke of him because the issue is not that they didn't give everything. The issue is the deception. Peter says, it was yours. If you kept part of it back, that would have been fine, but be honest about it. But it's that lying piece. And there's a piece of theology I want to pause on. I'm sorry, I'm a theology professor. I will always do this because this is important. When we begin to talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and ask the question, how do we know that Jesus is fully God? Why do we have ideas like the Holy Spirit is fully God and he's not just a force from the Father but is a distinct person himself? One of the texts we point to is actually this one. Notice Peter's words in verse 3. You lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the member of the Trinity we call the Holy Spirit. But then in the next verse, notice what Peter says, you lied to God. Peter, in how he addresses Ananias, actually equates God, the whole triune God, with the Holy Spirit particularly, and this is part of how we come to understand, Father, Son, and Spirit are all God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They're three distinct persons. They're not three different versions of the same God. They're three distinct persons with their own, uh, their own will and their own identity but there's still one God. Jesus said his baptism, as he's coming out of the water, the spirit descends in, in visible form like a dove and the spirit of the, uh, sorry, the voice of the father from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. We see all three members of the Trinity there. And here we see Peter confronting, you lied to God, you lied to the Holy Spirit. So there's a very important piece of theology here as we understand as disciples of Jesus Christ, we worship God. The, the triune God, who is one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who created all things, and who now lives in us. Interesting twist, the creator of the universe, the Holy Spirit himself, God as God the Father is God, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So we have this piece of theology we need to keep in mind, and now we see the punishment that comes on Ananias for his sin. His sin was not that he didn't give everything. His sin was he lied about it. He falls over dead. And I feel bad for these young men. When I think of young men, I think of my experience as a college prof. I assume they're a little bit like my mentees were. And sometimes uh, as a mentor, I would ask my mentees to uh, do some of the, the challenging jobs that needed to happen. Young men, would you please take? And they take the body out. And this raises a question I have never found an answer to. I have taught Acts. I've studied Acts. I have been a student of Acts. Why did no one say anything to Sapphira for three hours? 
for three hours. She's waiting for her turn to go into Peter's presence to receive the adulation for how great they are, how wonderful their gift is, uh, the image management and the, the public relations that they are obviously attempting to do is what is on her mind. But for three hours, the young men have carried her husband's body out. No one has warned her. Oh, by the way, your husband dropped dead in Peter's presence. No one says anything. When she comes into Peter, she doesn't know. We pick it up three hours, verse seven, later. His wife comes in. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, that is the price. And she perpetuates the lie her, father, her husband and she had previously arranged for. Peter's response, why do you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And instantly she is struck dead as well. And again, I feel bad for these young men. They just got finished burying the one. They arrived back in time to hear Sapphira fall over dead. And Peter going, have another one for you. This is not the first time something like this has happened. There's actually a really interesting, subtle link that we need to be aware of here. In Joshua chapter 7, when Jericho is taken, the Israelites were told, take nothing. It is all devoted to God. But in Joshua 7, as they're getting ready to continue the conquest of the promised land, they are defeated in battle. And when the Israelites cry out to God, why? God says, there is sin in the camp. Someone held back what was devoted to me. And that phrase, that verb, held back, is used of Achan. When Achan sees some of the plunder of Jericho, keeps it for himself, holds it back, and then sin enters Israel, God is forced to punish them, and ultimately Achan is punished, and his family is punished. That phrase, held back, is the same one Luke uses here in Acts 5. Because the sin of Achan that risked spreading through the community of God's people in the book of Joshua, and, and they will become sinful in time, and they will do a marvelous job of, of breaking covenant with God. But early on, God works very, very vigorously to keep them pure and keep them holy and to challenge them that I am your God, you must obey me. Just as God was working that way with Joshua and the Israelites, we're seeing the same thing here in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira held back and deception and the risk that sin would spread among the Israelites is the risk that sin would spread among the early church. And the result of this, verse 11, great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. We need to be very careful in our walk with God. God is gracious, God is loving, God is kind. In fact, there are books written about how God loves us. And it has taken us to a place where some think that if God really loves us, he can't punish us. That is a wrong theology because God is love, God is grace, God is mercy, but God is also holy and God is just. And we cannot have one without the other. He would cease to be God if he was not completely holy and completely loving. So sin demands death. So the holy righteous God says sin happens, there must be death. The loving God says, I don't want you to die. And so the solution is, I will send my son to die for you. Fear of God is an appropriate response. 
Fear of God is the correct response. The creator of the universe. I love Isaiah when he finds himself in the throne room of God in Isaiah 6. His response is one of fear. But notice even there, the grace of God where the angel comes, takes the coal, cleanses his lips so he does not need to die. Do not make the mistake that a loving God is not a holy God. We need holiness and love or God ceases to be God. So this response of fear is an appropriate one because people realize we can't just casually follow God. We can't just do what we want to and think that you know, God's not gonna notice. There's a call here for the people to be holy. Well, notice the outcome of this. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. We have this beautiful, beautiful example of how ministry is ongoing even after the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is exposed, even after they both die. Ministry is still going on. There is a sense of fear and reverence there now. They're respecting God, but they are still moving forward. Verse 11 reminds us of the fear, but verse 12 reminds us that people are still finding God. And verse 16, in addition, a multitude came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So not only do we have the early church pooling all of their resources and this beautiful moment where we see them caring for one another in deep and profound ways, but we see that God is still holy and expects his people to be holy and challenges them and brings uh, brings punishment where punishment is appropriate, but we're also reminded the gospel continues to go out, the church continues to expand. And this picture we've got here by verse 16 is that the apostles' ministry basically looks like Jesus' ministry did. There's elements of it, frankly, I'm a little uncomfortable with. If we were to back up, verse 15, as a result, they would carry the sick into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that Peter would come by and at least a shadow might fall on some of them. I'm not sure what to make of that. And Luke says it happens. He doesn't give us any indication that there were actually healings happening because of this. Was this just a hope on the part of the crowds or, or was God doing something particular with us? We just don't know. But we're left with this reminder of a holy God, an all-powerful God using his people to expand his kingdom, using his, his people to bless one another and to bring glory to his name. So what do we do with this? I want to suggest a few things that this text reminds us of. The first one is the challenge of what is the place of material things in our personal lives? I, I love what the church does here in verse 32. And I've been so deeply shaped by the kindness and generosity of my students, the kindness and generosity of the church over the years, family and friends. When there's a need, I have watched people step in not only for us personally, but for others. What is the place of personal possessions in all of that? How tightly do we hold on to these things? What do we do with our personal wealth? When do we sell something? When do we keep something? When do we save money? When do we give it away? There are some very difficult questions this actually raises, practical questions. Uh, there was a group that became firmly convinced in the mid-18th century uh, sorry, mid-19th century, Jesus was coming back imminently, and they went and sold everything, and they actually stood in the fields waiting, believing they knew the exact day Christ would return, sold everything, stood in the field waiting to be raptured, and nothing happened. And then they need to go back to their lives. But they just sold everything that they have. 
creates obviously some, some really interesting tensions. If we give everything that we have away, is that wise in the sight of God? And yet if I hold on to what I have and someone is in need, have I loved them the way that Christ does? We need to think this one through personally, I would suggest, because I think sometimes God calls some of us to some fairly radical, radical acts of generosity and others as we give out of the abundance God has given us, God blesses that. We need to be mindful that how one might live in matters of finance and personal possessions may not be the way another does. What's God calling you to do? What has God laid on your heart in terms of who you should share with? Uh, what size your tithe check should be for a church? What missionaries would you support? What about when someone in our community becomes ill, do we share with them? So I would encourage us, this is a personal question. This is a question we ask as a community, but we ask or we answer as individuals rather than what God's saying to me being what he says to everyone else. But what is that rule of personal finance and personal material things? Where is my value in life come from? Is it from the things that I buy or is it the God that I walk with? The second challenge for us here, who do we fear? Whose praise and worship do we want? Whose praise and adoration are we trying to earn? Interestingly, we don't earn praise and adoration or praise and worship because that's only due and offered up to God. But how often do we as human beings, we, we want a little bit of praise for ourselves. We want a little bit of worship for ourselves. I, I'm aware of what's in my own soul. My heart is deceitfully wicked as I think many of us can appreciate of our own, each one of us is often aware of this. And you don't have to watch very far where you see celebrities and we now call them influencers. And, and the egocentrism and the selfishness that can go there and, and how we try and manipulate and control what others think of us. This text stands completely against that. Does it matter what people think of me? Or does it matter what God thinks of me? Ananias and Sapphira were so concerned about public public approval and public praise. They lie to God and are punished for it. Do they go to hell? I would argue not. If they are believers and the text seems to indicate that they are children of God, then they have been punished by God as, and Paul talks about this in connection actually with communion. When we're in sin, God will discipline and sometimes discipline leads to death. That does not mean that we spend a Christless eternity, but it does mean that we die in this life. I think the indication here of the text is they will see God, they'll stand in his presence as children of God. But you kind of wonder what would be the regret that is there? We're more concerned about people's praise and not God's. And I have a strange sense of humor, please bear with me. I always think of this couple and Eutychus, who we'll talk about in a little while, and Rhoda as examples in the book of Acts of people who Luke records for us doing things that things kind of go sideways. Eutychus is a young man who falls asleep during Paul's preaching and falls out the window. Rhoda is the servant girl who leaves Peter standing at the door, and we have Ananias and Sapphira, and my strange sense of humor always leaves me thinking, what's it going to be like for Ananias and Sapphira to have all the generations of the church afterwards, meeting them in eternity, going... Were you the couple who, God is more gracious than that. God is more kind than that. But this text forces us to ask, do we fear God and want his approval 
more than we want the adoration of others. And it's so easy to slip into a sinful pattern of being worried about public opinion and worried about what people think. We need to guard our hearts. Approval of God, not the approval of men. Barnabas models this so well. He does what he does out of sense that this is what I'm supposed to do. And he's recognized the son of encouragement. When we pick up his story later in Acts, we will discover a man who is simply being a devoted follower of Jesus and doing what comes naturally as a devoted follower of Jesus. Barnabas is one of my scripture heroes. Do we fear God or do we fear men? The third, there's a reminder here, God wants a holy people. We've recently celebrated communion and every time we do communion, I'm always brought back to that reminder that Paul says that when we do not recognize the body and blood of Christ, we sin and when we sin against the body, that we risk being punished. And Paul goes on and tells the Corinthians, this is why some of you are sick and weak and some have fallen asleep, some have died. God wants a holy people. Are we keeping short accounts? Are we guarding our hearts that we honor God properly? Are we recognizing him as the creator of the universe, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, whose will it is that we bend the knee to, whose commands it is that we are obedient to, or do we still have a little bit of a tendency to say, I, I've accepted the forgiveness of Jesus, but I still want to live life my way. I've walked with Jesus since about 1983. And I'm still learning what it means, not my will, but yours be done. God is calling us to be a holy people. And there is a reminder here, if necessary, he will take drastic steps. Let us guard our hearts that he does not need to. And finally, there's this idea of welcoming God's work among us. I'm a little uncomfortable with the, the incident with Peter's shadow. I don't see signs and miracles and wonders happening in our church the way that we read about here with the apostles. And that's a theological conversation for another day. But it is a clear reminder for us. As God wants to use us, as God is empowering us for how he would have us to live in Saskatoon, in, in our families, in the various places he's called us to, there's a clear call in this text that we need to be faithful and obedient to God and welcome his work in us and through us, however that might look. I love verse 16. They are all healed. As the apostles and the church does the work of God, people are introduced to Jesus Christ, are brought into eternity with Christ, join the kingdom of God, and people are made whole. Will we welcome the work of God among us, however that might look? What's the place of material things for us? Do we fear God? Are we seeking to be God's holy people and are we welcoming his work among us? Would you bow with me in prayer? Holy God, we thank you for your work among Peter and the apostles, among the early church. Lord, I marvel at men like Barnabas who are transformed by the gospel. Lord, I'm, I'm, I marvel at someone whose character as a disciple of Jesus is so clear that they, they see fit to give him a nickname because it better represents who he is, the son of encouragement. Lord, Raise us up as a people devoted to you. Lord, we're mindful that Ananias and Sapphira, as your children, they sinned. They did wrong. 
and you discipline them harshly on this side of eternity. Lord, my heart's cries that that would not need to be us. But you are holy, and you're calling us to be holy. Lord God, cleanse us and forgive us. If we have sinned, give us the courage to own it. Lord, our desire is not for you to move with a heavy hand among us, but Father God, your will be done if that is what is needed, that we would be holy, that we would fear you more than we would fear men. And Lord, would you do your work among us, whatever that looks. We're trying to determine how shall we now live in this season that we're currently in. And when things return to normal, how shall we continue to live? Lord, work your plan through us and in us. Show us what you'd have us to say. Show us what you'd have us to do. And Holy God, give us the strength and the courage to be faithful to you, to be obedient to you. Have your way, Holy God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this week.
That's a really uncomfortable passage.